Romans 12 and verse 12. It says, Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. So let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that you've given us here to look into your word, God. I just pray that your name is glorified as we do so. Pray that your people are edified. And just pray that you give me the words to speak and give us to the wisdom and understanding of your word here this morning, God. In the name of Christ, amen. So by way of review, we've, we've dealt with, obviously, Romans 1 through 11, the, more the doctrinal, doctrinal portion of the, the epistle that Paul wrote to the Romans, and now he's getting into more of the practical application, the idea that if you actually believe chapters 1 through 11, this is how you should respond. Um, and he starts out the chapter with, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, by Romans 1 through 11, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. And he says that's your reasonable service. That's, it's reasonable to lay down your life if you believe Romans 1 through 11. And we've been going through this. We've been seeing how we, we are, God has given each one of us gifts and talents, and we are to lay it down. Uh, for one another within the church. Remember Paul says for those among you, those within that church that, that he was writing to in Rome, to lay down your life for your brethren, to love them without hypocrisy, to be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. And then we saw last week the not slothful in business, um, which I dealt with it, of being pretty much all of your life, not just your, when you go to work, He's not, Paul's just not saying when you clock in at your job, don't be slothful there. He's saying don't be slothful in your business no matter where you're at, no matter what you're doing. Work hard. Why? Because you're serving the Lord. You're not serving the company that you're clocking in for. You're not necessarily serving your family, if you will, even though you are. But at, at the, 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 what's first and foremost is that you're serving God. And we come to this verse here. It says, rejoicing in hope. So I have three points here. And they're very simple. One word. Praise. Persevere. And prayer. And the first point here is praise. So once again, let me mention this. As I've mentioned multiple times. And I'll continue to mention. That this verse here is not totally, totally detached from what Paul was saying. I know oftentimes we can, we can think of, of one verse apart from the context. I know that, that happens to us sometimes. We think, well, this, this verse, and it pops up into our head, one verse. And then if we would actually look at the surrounding context, maybe that verse doesn't mean what we think that it means. And one of them I'll be quoting today, Philippians 4.13, right? Where it says, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. He's not talking about in the weight room. He's not talking about in the UFC octagon. Even though he is talking about that stuff too, right? But it's not that, that Christ just strengthened me so I can deadlift five, six hundred pounds. That he strengthened me that I woke up this morning and given, has given me my strength. But what Paul is saying in that context is whether I'm poor without anything, whether I'm in prison, or whether I have abundance, I can do all th things through Christ who strengthened me. As a little side note, but it's, it's kind of what can happen if our mind just focuses, laser focused on one verse and the context disappears around it. However, I don't want to do that. We don't want to isolate one verse from the context. So this is 
tied to what Paul has been saying. It actually follows serving the Lord, right? Serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope. And it's right before being patient in tribulation. So as we are serving the Lord, we are to be rejoicing in hope. Literally, in the Greek, this would read, in the hope rejoicing. So it's not as though the hope is outside of us, or rather that we are outside of the hope and trying to rejoice in it. We are in the hope. It says, in the hope rejoicing. And while we are in the hope, we are there rejoicing. Or we could say that this hope is in us. And because of that, we are rejoicing. Now, I must define this word for us because of how it's used in our day. And I've probably defined it multiple times before, but I'm going to do it again. When the Bible speaks about hope, it doesn't mean, I hope that this thing's going to happen. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean, I wish that this would happen. That's not what the Bible speaks about when it speaks about hope. It means, I expect it to happen, or I know it's going to happen, but it has not happened yet. The Thayer's Greek Dictionary says joyful, of this word, it says joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. Which I think is a perfect definition of it. Notice it says eternal salvation, not just justification. Because it's the confident hope of our completed salvation, which doesn't end with justification, but with glorification, right? So this hope is confidently and joyfully resting in the fact that since I am justified, God will complete the work in me. And that what Paul said, being confident in this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. So we can have this joyful and confident expectation because God promised it and he cannot lie. And Paul tells us about this hope, that we are to rejoice in it. We, we know what rejoice means, but let me bring out a little bit more of this. It means to be full of cheer. To be calmly happy or well off. So why, why are we to be full of cheer? When I, whenever I say that, it makes my mind think of the grumpy Christians that I'm sure you all know them. We're supposed to be full of cheer, not grumpy Christians. But it, why should we be full of cheer? Because we have the hope of our salvation is secured. Now this is not the first time that Paul's used this when he's been speaking to these Roman Christians. Let's go back and see a couple of the other times. Turn back to Romans chapter 4. This is speaking about Abraham here. Uh, Romans 4.18. It says, Who, Abraham, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. What was Abraham's hope? Well, it was what God promised him, right? Abraham's hope that he believed in was what God promised him. And what did God promise him? That he was going to be the father of many nations. That's what Paul says right here. That's what his hope was, that he would be the father of many nations. It was that the, the whole earth, all families would be blessed through a seed. Isn't that what it tells us in Genesis? 
All families will be blessed through your seed, Abraham. So the question is, did Abraham see that? I mean, did he physically see it with his own eyes that his seed would be more than the sands of the seashore or more than the stars of the sky? Did Abraham physically see that with his eyes? That was the promise. God promised that to him, right? So Abraham, did he see it? If he did not see it, is God a liar now? The New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ was Abraham's seed. So how could he see it? If Abraham's seed is Jesus Christ, how could he see it? Abraham died 1,900 years before Jesus was born. How could he see his seed? Well, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. How did he see it? By faith. By faith and not by sight. He didn't see it with his physical eyes. The seed wasn't right there in front of him. And, and the, his seed wasn't as the sand of the seashore, the stars of the skies right there in front of him physically. But he saw it by faith. And he hoped for that coming day. He saw it. God promised it. It's going to happen. I have a joyful and confident expectation. What God promised me is going to happen. It has not happened here in front of me in my lifetime. Or my son's lifetime. Or my grandson's lifetime. All the way down. And it, it's the seed was Christ 1900 years. But Abraham, it says, believed in hope. Who against hope believed in hope? Wasn't who against hope? Because it didn't look hopeful, did it? My wife's barren. I'm 85 years old, and you're telling me I'm gonna be a father of many nations? Who against hope believed in hope? Did Abraham have a reason to hope? Of course he did. Because Yahweh told him it was going to happen. He said it's going to happen, therefore it's going to happen, whether it happens in your lifetime, your children's lifetime, your grandchildren's lifetime, your great-grandchildren, and you can keep on going. If God told you it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And that's what the hope was. It was to look forward to this. It says in Hebrews 6, 13 and 14, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, Blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. So Abraham, through the eye of faith, hoped for that day to come, and it did, and it still is happening, right? Just as God promised. Remember Galatians chapter 3 that I already quoted, where, where Jesus is Abraham's seed, but it says those that are in him by faith are sons of the promise as well. So it's still happening today. And the writer of Hebrews uses that picture to teach us to do the same. In the same chapter, Hebrews chapter 6, he says in verses 17, 17 through 20, it says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, who would have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure 
and steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as our forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. John, John Gill on this portion right here, he says, This world is a sea, the church in it, and so every believer is as a ship. The port that is bound unto is heaven. Christ is a pilot and hope is the anchor. An anchor is cast on a bottom out of sight when the ship is in a calm or in a danger of rock or near the shore. But it but is of no surface without a cable. And when cast aright, keeps the ship steady. So hope is cast on Christ. If you're a ship and the world is the ocean, right? Or the sea. When you cast that anchor, it's on Christ. The picture Hebrews gives us is that Jesus has entered into the holy place. Into the holy of holies is what people call it. That's what it says, the inner place there. He's entered into the holy place. You can't see into the holy place. You can't see into the holy of holies right now, but your hope is cast into it and anchored on Christ. Now turn up to eight. Uh, same book, Romans 8.24. Romans 8.24 says, For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why does he yet hope for? It says, For you, we are saved by hope. As I brought out when we went through this about a year ago, hope didn't die on a tree for you. Just as faith didn't. Hope didn't rise from the grave for your justification. What this is talking about is the culmination of what Paul has been saying previously in this chapter. He's not talking about hope justified you. Jesus Christ justified you. What he's talking about in this chapter is that all of creation is groaning for the hope of being delivered from the bondage of corruption. From the curse, if you will. That's our hope, right? That's what we look forward to now as believers. We are perfectly justified before God, but our hope is for the consummation, the doing away of all sin and death. That's what we look forward to. And this could go right with what we're seeing right there in Romans chapter 12. In the hope rejoicing. We are saved and in the hope now. And rejoicing, confidently waiting the consummation time. When all things will be made new. But let me say this to deter from apathy. God is currently making all things new. And will continue until all things are made new. You say, how? I say, now we have a new covenant. We have a new law, the law of Christ in the new covenant. We have a new high priest. We have a new sacrifice, whom is Christ. We have a new Jerusalem. And God has made you a new creature. And if you think I'm stretching, Paul actually says this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. God is doing it right now and He's using His people to do it. 
So we ought not become apathetic and say, why polish brass, brass on a sinking ship? We ought to be rejoicing in hope, serving the Lord as Paul tells us to. Now notice in, in Romans right there it says, that hope is not seen. It's in the future. We don't physically see it with our eyes, but we see it through the eyes of faith. Just as Abraham saw Jesus' day through the eye of faith, we look forward through the eyes of faith and hope for that coming day when all things will be completely made new. And we rejoice because we know that it's coming. We have a joyful and confident expectation that it's going to happen. Why? Because God promised it. To close this point here, let's go to one more section of Scripture. Just turn back to the book of Acts here, chapter 24. It's just a previous book in your Bible. Acts 24 and verse 10. And this right here goes right along with what our confession said this morning. Acts 24.10 It says, Then Paul, after the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogue, nor in the city, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess to thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which were written in the law and the prophets and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there should be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. That was the hope. The hope toward God was that there's a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Is this not a reason to have hope? The hope of the coming resurrection and consummation, and that knowledge is within us, but we don't see it yet. However, we do see it through the eyes of faith. And we know that one day, there will be a resurrection of the dead, both small and great. And they shall stand before God, as John wrote in Revelation chapter 20. And the books were open. And another book was open, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things whose names were not found in the book. So rejoice, brethren, in the hope, because your name is secured in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Let's move on here to our perseverance. Don't really need to turn back to Romans because it's such a short verse. But it says, Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. So our next point here is persevere. So Paul here goes from rejoicing in hope or remember, literally, it said, in the hope rejoicing, right? That's if, you, if you were to look at the Greek, that's what it says, in the hope rejoicing. To this phrase here that's tra is translated in our Bibles as patient in tribulation. Now, Paul, once again, here writes it different than what we see it in our translation. He actually does it in all three 
uh, phrases in this verse. All three phrases, it's literally in the hope, rejoicing. In the tribulation, patient. In the prayer, persevering. So it's not simply patient in tribulation, but in the tribulation, patient. Now where does our mind go when we hear that? Probably to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, right? When our modern day mind hears of the tribulation, we often think of what many call the Great Tribulation, right? Now, I before have dealt with Matthew 24 in depth, and you can go listen to those sermons if you wish. However, I do want to touch on this real, real quick, though this is way deeper than what we can get into on one point on Sunday morning. We can see this as two different ways. When it says, in the tribulation, patient, we can see it in two different ways. And I have them as subpoints, A and B. The tribulation, or the great tribulation that we call, or just tribulation in general. So we could see this, this is A, the point A, we could see this as Paul warning the Romans of the tribulation period that was about to take place of the destruction of the temple and the dispersion of the Jews. Which may have been the case. Remember John in Revelation 1.9, he's writing to the churches, right? And he says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom. So he is in the, in the tribulation. John recognized that he was in the tribulation. Paul also states that the son of perdition, which y'all probably heard of before, right? The son of perdition and the mystery of lawlessness, he says, was already at work when he was writing to, to the Thessalon, uh, Thessalonians. Jesus said that the tribulation would take place within one generation of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. So this was a real threat and something that was going to happen very soon after Paul was writing this. And remember, Paul was writing this around 56 to 58 A.D. And the destruction of Jerusalem happened between 66 and 70 A.D. So it was around 10 years before that happens. So Jesus had warned his disciples of the destruction of Jerusalem around 30 A.D. And now we're closing the end to the end of that generation. So now Paul is here warning the Roman Christians. And he's not warning them like those that were warned in Jerusalem. Paul isn't saying, flee Rome. Jesus told his disciples, if you read Matthew 24, when you see the, the uh, abomination of desolation surround the city, flee. He says, get out. That's not what Paul's saying. The word that Paul uses here for patient or persevering is a word that means to remain. Not to flee. The opposite of fleeing is to remain. If you were in Jerusalem, coming up on the destruction of that city, what John calls Babylon, Jesus and John warned you to flee. However, Paul says, says, stay, remain, do not flee to those in Rome. Why? Because though persecution had been happening to them, as we've already seen, and the tribulation was going to take place. The aim of the tribulation was the, the destruction of Jerusalem and those that said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. That's where it's going to take place. 
Those in, in Jerusalem that crucified the Lord and said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. God was going to destroy the city and it was coming within one generation of Jesus' preaching there on the Mount Olives. But these people were in Rome. So he says, remain and endure. That's one way we can see this. The other way is tribulation in general. Jesus said, in the world, y'all probably know this verse, in the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. This is true of every follower of Christ. Not just those in Jerusalem or Rome, but also for those today in China, in Russia, in Africa, in America, in South America. In the world, you shall have tribulation. This is not as though it's optional. All Christians will face tribulation. Now, obviously on different levels from one person to another, right? I may face different or tribulation than what you will face. However, we will not escape it. And I'm sure everyone in here can, can admit to facing some tribulation since becoming a Christian. Whether they be family issues because of your faith, employment issues because of your faith, maybe losing friends or being spoken ill of because of your faith. You will face tribulation and there's no way around it. Jesus promised it to his followers. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it will come. And what's the answer to it? Well, if we're looking at our verse here in Romans, it's to remain. It's not to flee. It's to be patient and persevere through it. And Paul gives us one of the main ways to persevere through it in our verse right there. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuingly, continuing instant in prayer. That's our third point, prayer. By continually, that's how, how, how do we persevere in tribulation? By continuing instant in prayer. This word for continuing instant in KJV means to continue all the time. To be devoted. To be constant. To be steadfastly attentive unto. So in our day, within the church, we often hear how we'd like to be like the early church, right? We hear that all the time. Oh, I wish we were like the early church. As though those were the glory days. Now, they most certainly did have some stuff together, but they also had all kinds of problems in that early church. Now, here's one thing they did have together, though. Turn back to Acts chapter 1. And we should take note of this. Acts 1 and verse 14. says, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Look at up at chapter 2 and verse 24. I'm sorry, 2 and verse 40. 42, not 24. I had dyslexia there for a second. 
And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And look at verse 46. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. There's something that they had that we need. They continued in one accord together in prayer. This is our call here in Romans. It's to be like this now. And it wasn't just the leadership. I know if you go to Acts chapter 6, you can see that they continued to be, they wanted to continue to be in word of God and prayer. But it was for the whole church, from the least to the greatest. They were continually in prayer. They were constantly in prayer. I wonder if we could say the same. There's a quote by Martin Luther that says, I have so much to do today, I must spend the first three hours in prayer. How many of us could say that? How many of us have spent the first three hours in prayer? However, that's not even the call. The call is to be continually in prayer. Not just three hours. You say that's impossible. Nobody can do that, right? Well, then the Word of God is wrong. And you're right. And I, don't, I dare say nobody in here will take that stance. Paul states in another one of his epistles to pray without ceasing. It's a command. To be continually in prayer, to pray without ceasing. Paul also says to multiple, multiple churches that he's always in prayer for them. I'm always in prayer for you. I'm always in prayer for you. He's praying for them all the time, at all times. So Paul must have just been walking around like this all the time, right? Head bowed, eyes closed. I don't believe that was the case at all. What it means to be in a constant state of prayer. That's what it means. And what is prayer? It's not just some formula that we repeat over and over again. It's not that I have to get down on my knees and, and, and bow my head and close my eyes. It's talking to God. That's prayer. So it's to be in constant conversation with God. I'm going to tell you something right now, and y'all, you may or may not like this. And those in the back row. But I think sometimes Pentecostals blow us out of the water when it comes to this. And I'm not talking about speaking in tongues. That's a whole other issue. I'm talking about them praying more than us. I'm talking about them recognizing that God is with them everywhere. It's not just one hour on Sunday. It's not just every other Wednesday. It's the ones that I've been around that pretty much have to pray about everything. You ask them, can we go out to lunch? I need to pray about it. If they're going to make a purchase, they would pray about it. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes they maybe go a little too far on this, but we reform folks don't go far enough. We think God is sovereign. He's ordained everything that takes place, so it doesn't matter. What am I praying for? I wonder if Paul was reformed. I wonder if Paul believed God ordained the end from the beginning. However, he says he's constantly in prayer. The very one, when people can say, whatever they want about Calvinism. 
I, I, Paul taught this stuff. Paul is the one that taught that God has ordained the end from the beginning. He, he set all these things in motion. He's the sovereign one over the universe. And he's constantly in prayer. How about the one that wrote Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. That's what Isaiah says about God. He's declared the end from the beginning. He says, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. He also says, even those, he's, now this is the Lord speaking through, Isaiah, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Isaiah was not just a prophet of God. He was a man of prayer. And we could go through all scriptures and see this of God's people but there is one that stands above them all, right? The Lord Jesus Christ was a man of prayer. He prayed so much that his disciples fell asleep. I almost felt like that this morning. We had such a good prayer time. Y'all might have to come down here and wake me up. He prayed so much that his disciples... What did they come up and ask him? They didn't come up and say, Jesus, will you teach us to preach? They said, will you teach us how to pray? Because he was a man of prayer. Is he not our example? Now, we could, we could speak of the great tribulation, what I brought up earlier, and argue about when that was or, or how it would take place. However, the greatest tribulation came upon him. He, as a perfectly righteous man, obeying all points of the law, stood before wicked men, and though they couldn't find no fault in him, brought forth much tribulation on him. But before that, what about our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane? He knew what was coming. He knew of the coming wrath. And he was in prayer. He, was, he wasn't sweating drops of blood because he feared man, but because he was about to have the wrath of the Father unleashed on him. He was going to have hell unleashed on him on that cross. And not for his sins, but for yours and mine. Yet before that hour came, he was in intense prayer. And even as he was hanging upon that cross, suffocating, bleeding out, what was he doing? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was praying. He was dying there and still praying. Then when the wrath is appeased, he prays to his father again and says, it is finished. The debt has been paid in full, Father. And follows by saying, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Jesus spent his life and death in prayer. 
And one thing we can say is that Jesus didn't always preach to everybody. There was times he withdrew himself from the people. And why did he withdraw himself from the people? And go up to the top of a mountain to pray. He didn't go preach to everybody. But one thing we can say for sure about Jesus is that he was always in prayer. But it doesn't end there, right? He died, right? Was buried. Three days later rose from the grave, ascended to his right hand of his father, and sat down to do what? Make intercession for us. He's still interceding for us. He still stands as our high priest offering up prayer for us. So ought not we do the same? He was dependent on His Father through His life and ministry as God the Son. And we think we're strong enough to make it without it. Brethren, we ought to always be in prayer. For without Him we can do nothing. You couldn't have woke up today and made it to church without Him. So let's be devoted in prayer as Paul commands us. Even when we're going through tribulation, even while we're serving the Lord, even while we are a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, let's be instant or constant in prayer, for we need Him for everything. So let's go into our application here. Is our call to faith and repentance to the unbelievers. The Apostle Paul, though he commands us to rejoice in hope, says of those that don't know Christ that they are without hope. I'll say she would be scared when I turn around. The Apostle Paul commands us believers to rejoice in hope and says of those that don't know Christ that they are without hope. If you do not know Jesus Christ this morning, you are without hope. You have no hope of heaven. Though you may deceive yourself by thinking that you are good enough to be there. God only accepts perfection. And I dare say you haven't deceived yourself enough to say that you're perfect. I have not met that person yet. They would say, yes, I'm a good person. Yes, my good works outweigh my bad. But I say it doesn't matter. Even if your good works did outweigh your bad, you have to be perfect. Are you perfect? You must be perfectly holy to stand before a perfectly holy God. And you do not have that. Your own righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees. And if you die in your righteousness, you will perish. Isaiah tells us that even our righteousness is as filthy rags. So your best works are disgusting in the sight of God. So what must you do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't mean just believe that He's real or a good teacher or a nice man, but trust in Him as your righteousness. He has a perfect righteousness and through belief in Him, it's imputed to you. But what about my sins? What about my failures? Well, the God-man took His people's sins upon Himself on that cross. They were imputed to Him. This is where this, this doctrine called double imputation 
Our sins were imputed onto Christ on the cross and He was crushed in our place. He soaked up hell. He soaked up the wrath of God and the justice due unto His people. And by faith, righteousness is imputed into our account. It's counted. We are counted as though we are righteous. And He was counted as though He was the worst of all sinners on that cross. So the call to you this morning is not to work harder, not to obey more, not to do anything, but believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. Look to Him as your righteousness and be saved. To us believers here, here's part of the problem is saved sinners. As sinners and at the same time just we see these commands and we want to obey them. And we do obey them sometimes. But we also fail in them. We, like Paul in Romans chapter 7, he says those things that I want to do, which was obey God, those are the things I'm not doing, but the very things that I hate, those are the things I'm doing. You know that feeling? So what's the answer or the call to us? It's to look to Christ. It's to rejoice in Him. It's to persevere in Him. It's to be in prayer in Him. Christ is not separated from our Christian walk. It's not like He, he did that 2,000 years ago and we believe that and now we get, get to work to obey detached from Him. It's not, I believed the gospel back then, and now I've moved on to something else. Now I've moved on to this part of my life, the gospel. Yeah, I believed that, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And I was justified then, but now I'm off into something. That's not the Christian life. We do nothing in our Christian walk without Him. Nothing. He is divine. And we are the branches, right? And it says, to those that abide in Him, bring forth much fruit. And He says, without me, you can do nothing. But as I quoted earlier in the thing, in a sermon, but through Christ, we can do all things. Without Christ, I can do nothing. But through Christ, I can do all things. It's a constant recognition that I need Christ. I need Him when I wake up, when I go to work. When I stay home, when I go to church, no matter where and when, I need Him. Without Him, I am without hope and lost in the world. But in Him and through Him, I can rejoice in hope and persevere in tribulation and prayer. So our call is to look at Christ more. Focus more on the Gospel and repent of our self-reliance. Of thinking, I got this. You don't got anything without Him. And sometimes He shows us very plainly, doesn't He? He shows us that we don't have this. I don't have this life no doubt. God shows us that sometimes, does He? How? By breaking us. And making us to rely on others within the church. And what a hard lesson that is sometimes.
know if it was Zach or Aria crying there. Mommy. <laughs> Sometimes God shows us that we need to be dependent on others, right? And He shows us that by breaking us sometimes. And making us rely on others within the church. It's a hard lesson, but a need for one. We need this type, this kind of breaking sometimes. We like Moses in Exodus 17, remember? He grew so tired, he was holding up his staff. He grew so tired, they couldn't hold up his arms anymore. And he had two brothers come on both sides and hold up his arms for him because he couldn't hold them up anymore. Sometimes that's what it takes, right? This is one of the great sins of the male community. We tend to think we are strong. We don't need help. We get offended when somebody asks to help us. You didn't need help with that, brother. You didn't look like you're struggling. What are you talking about? Struggling. I got this. However, as Christians, we are part of a community for a reason. What Scripture teaches: a three-cord thread is not easily broken. Right. So even in our reliance on one another, we are really relying on Christ. For even our brothers and sisters couldn't help us apart from Christ. So all of this goes back to Him. So look to Him and repent of your stubborn pride or of self-reliance. Rejoice in Him. Persevere in Him. And be constant in prayer in Him. Let's move on to the last point here, the call to war. Now even though we can do nothing without Him, the flip side is true and was quoted through him we can do all things we can rejoice in hope we can persevere in tribulation we can be constant in prayer in him we rejoice because he is our hope he is what we are looking for forward to in confidence it says if he go and prepares a place for us he will come again and receive us unto himself that where he is you will be also that's the hope we're looking forward to, right? It's not just that sin and death are gone. Praise God when that day's coming though, right? When sin and death are gone. But that's not what I look forward to. I look forward to what the, the theologians call the beatific vision. It's when I see Him face to face. Yes, sin and death are gone. I don't care about that. I get to see my Savior face to face. Oh, what a blessed day that will be. It says this old hymn. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see and look upon His face, the one who saved me by His grace. That's our hope, brethren. And that's where we rest in. We can persevere in tribulation because Jesus didn't just say, in the world you shall have tribulations, right? If He would have stopped right there, that would have been kind of harsh. He didn't just say, in the world you shall have tribulation. But he says, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. He went before us and overcame. And now that you are in Christ, it says in Romans chapter 8, that now we are more than conquerors in Christ. We also overcome the world. We persevere in tribulations, which as I mentioned, is not to flee them. It's not to run from them, but to remain in them with patience. If He overcame them and He's dwelling in you, you can overcome them as well with patience. 
So in other words, don't give up in your tribulations. Keep fighting. Keep pressing forward. He will take you through them. And I say this as though it's just us, right? No, it's not. It's him inside of us taking us through that. And we can be constant in prayer in him. Listen, this is important. Because he tore the veil. He opened the way into the Holy of Holies. If you know the story of the Old, old Covenant Holy of Holies, only the high priest was allowed to walk in there. And they would tie a rope around his ankle and have a bell on there just in case he died when he was in there because you couldn't go in there. And they would pull him out. And the veil, it wasn't just something like on the walls here. It was supposed to be, it was like this thick. And the, the 70 elders, would, what it would take to open up the thing so the high priest could go into there. And as I love how it mentions that the veil was torn from top to bottom to show that God did it. Man didn't tear the veil. God did. He opened the way to the Holy of Holies. When Christ, He, as our high priest, entered in and was the mercy seat for us and His blood was poured out for us. As our high priest, and then He tore the veil and made it so you can enter into the Holy of Holies. And now it's not just some physical place on earth that you must go to, but it's everywhere. You can enter into the Holy of Holies right now. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. So enter there. And stay there, brother. Go to the Lord in prayer because He's granted you access to His throne room. And He hasn't left you nor forsook you. Jesus promised that He will be with us always. So He's here. And wherever you go today, He's there. When you're at home, He's there. When you're at work, He's there. When you're out on the streets preaching, He's there. He has won the war through His blood and He has called us to go do the cleanup. Right? That's really what we are doing. After the war, they had come in and clean up the bodies. Jesus Christ already won the war and He sent us out to clean up. We're to find those purchased by His blood. How do we do that? Well, like Spurgeon said, you lift up their coattails and see if they have a yellow stripe down their back to tell if they're elect or not. No. The way we do it is by preaching the gospel. God will save His people. God will persevere His people. God has given us a hope. So let's take that hope outside the walls of this church into the world. And see God do what God has promised that He would do. And it's advance His kingdom for His namesake. Amen.